There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Lauren K. Johnson. Lauren grew up in a military family in the Seattle area. She wanted to serve as an Air Force Public Affairs Officer and award-winning Department of Defense journalist deploying to the Republic of Mali and Afghanistan. After receiving an honorable discharge, Lauren earned an MFA in creative writing at Emerson College in Boston. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Glamour, and other publications, and she has lectured at schools, conferences, and veteran centers across the country, including the Association of Writers and Writing Programs National Conference, the Boston Book Festival, and the University of Iowa. She's a writing consultant for Grub Street and, by day, works for Ignite Worldwide, a nonprofit that aims to combat the gender imbalance in STEM fields. She lives with her husband and two-year-old twin daughters in Seattle. Her memoir, The Fine Art of Camouflage, was published by Millspeak Books excuse me, in March of this year. Lauren K. Johnson, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So before we start, that was two-thirds of a page of an intro for you. How do you, <laughs> how do, you do all this? You got a book, you've got a career, you've got twins, a couple of nonprofit jobs. You know, I ask myself that question multiple times a day. <laughs> how do I do this? And, and sometimes, wh- why do I do this? And, and it would be nice to just like, you know, step back and take a breath sometimes. But you know, I, I also am, am really energized by just being busy and, and don't do well when I'm sitting still. So I guess it kind of kind of suits me. Um, and it also didn't all happen at once. I It kind of came late to the game with having a family and took a very circuitous route to get to a career that I enjoy. And this book has been 12 years in the making. So it all just kind of converged a couple years ago, but in the best possible way. And before the show, we both shared a, a cup of coffee that gets us through the day. So that certainly helps as well. So, you know, your book chronicles your coming of age against the backdrop of war, beginning with your mother's army career and deployment in support of Operation Desert Storm when you were seven years old and later with your own service in Afghanistan. Can you tell me a bit about your mother's military service? Yeah, absolutely. My mother retired after 22 years in the Army, predominantly in the Army Reserves. She retired as a lieutenant colonel, so she's quite the stud, and served as, a, as an Army nurse. First active duty for a few years and then went reserves. And a main reason why she went reserves is because she wanted to have a family and she wanted to have stability. And in that era, the late 80s, early 90s, the reserves promised that and specifically the unit that she chose a massive um, hospital unit in the Seattle area with 750 personnel. It was one of those things at the time where everybody said, Oh, we're too big and too expensive to deploy. So, you know, you'll, you'll get stability here. You'll, you'll never leave Seattle. And, you know, it sounds like a, a B movie I'm setting up. Dun, dun, dun. What's going to happen next. Um, and as You know, from that intro, my mom did end up deploying. She was activated to deploy in support of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, on uh, right after Thanksgiving weekend of of 1990. And I was seven years old at the time. My sister turned nine while my mom was gone, and my brother was barely two. So 
young family kind of thrust into this deployment experience that we weren't expecting. And that at the time had so much unknown swirling around it. And we look back now at Desert Storm and it was a, a relatively quick and decisive conflict, but it didn't feel that way at the time. And my mom actually thought it might be a suicide mission with the, the threat of chemical warfare and the, the potential for Israel getting involved. So uh, it, it was a much, much bigger thing, just just full of uncertainty and, and stress at the time than you know, the, the kind of gift of hindsight as we look back now. Uh, but overall, my mom enjoyed her, her military career um, she she calls it a blip, the the few months where she was in, in Saudi Arabia in support of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And, you know, that was understandably a, a very challenging time for our family. And when she got home, we all made a family pact that no one else would join the military because one deployment was enough. So again, with the B-movie thing, ah, what's going to happen next? And we'll get to that in a moment. You know, while you're talking, I realize we've had a lot of veterans on the show here but you might be the first person we've had on as both a veteran and child of a veteran. I know you're seven years old at the time, but you know, when your mother was deployed to war, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind with you, your siblings? As a seven-year-old, a lot of it was, was just a very emotional reaction. Uh, my mom and I have always been very close. She was my person. So having her very suddenly plucked from my life was unsettling in, in a lot of ways. And it was an interesting era because deployments were so, un, it wasn't a predictable thing like it is if you join the military in, in this era. And because my mom was a reservist, we didn't live on a base. She was by and large a, a part-time soldier. So she would go to drill weekends, one weekend a month and, and two weeks a year. And by and large, we were just a, a, a normal young family, and she was driving our carpools to school and you know, going on field trips with us and carting us around to a variety of activities. So having her leave just thrust us into this whole new routine. My dad suddenly was a single parent you know, working full time. He commuted to, to downtown Seattle from the suburbs, so he was gone for you know, 12 hours a day. And we would go to, to neighbors' houses and, and friends' houses before and after school. Had a lot of community support. The community really rallied around us, perhaps in part because we were the only local family impacted. But being the only local family impacted also felt like a big spotlight was on us. And it felt very isolating being the only person going through this. So it was kind of a weird double-edged sword. I, I was very emotional. I, I saw the school counselor for a few weeks. I, I cried almost every night in bed. My mom recorded herself reading us bedtime stories. And every time that that tape ended, I, I just burst into tears. That was kind of just the way I processed things as a seven-year-old. You know, my, my sister was, of course, impacted, but expressed emotions differently. So that's one of the things I explored and kind of played with as I was writing was just the, the way that you know, we're impacted both internally and how we express that externally. And then looking at, you know, how does that play out in our adult lives? And, you know, why was I, who was so overtly impacted and so open with my emotions and my distress about my mom going on, why then did I end up being the one to join the military? Is that where you go, dun, dun, dun? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. 
Your mom wasn't the only family member to serve in the military before you. You're from a military family, but plenty of people in military families, and especially women, do not go on to join the armed forces. What inspired your mother to join the military and what motivated her throughout her service? My mom and I are alike in so many ways, and we actually have a lot of connections in, in the reasons we joined. You know, we both, I, I went through ROTC and my mom went through a, a similar program. So you're a college student while you're receiving military training. It's basically like a college class and you do some lab work where you're focused on learning how to be an officer. And we both joined at 18, you know, it, when we were young and naive and, you know, a little headstrong and asserting our independence. And we both had full scholarships, which is a very alluring thing when you're 18. So my mom, you know, loved many things about that experience, as did I, the opportunities to to be a leader and to work with a group of people who are like-minded and, and working towards similar goals and, you know, something greater than yourself. I, I think we both just inherently have that, that desire to serve within us. She expressed that as a nurse and then as a nurse in the army. You know, I expressed that joining the military and in my, my day job now working for a nonprofit, we just both kind of are in our element when we're supporting other people. And the military was one vehicle we chose to do that. What were some of the challenges or sacrifices your mother faced while serving the military? Obviously, the deployment is the big one, you know, leaving your, your young family for what for her was an undetermined length of time. She had orders for up to two years. And however long they needed her, she was committed to being there. So with a young family at home, she was thinking, I have a two-year-old. I'm gone for two years. He's not going to remember me. I, I can't even now as a mother myself with two-year-olds, I can't even fathom what that must have felt like. But beyond that, she was a woman in the military in an era where, you know, even now it, it's still challenging in a lot of ways to be a woman in the military. And she entered right after the dissolution of the draft and the military was kind of desperate for volunteer bodies, regardless of their gender. So she kind of came in in a wave of, of other folks doing that. And in her deployment to Desert Storm was part of the largest contingent of women to serve in a, in a conflict, um, 40,000 women. She tells stories about how when she was applying for her scholarship to, to go essentially go to nursing school with the army, that she was asked questions about, you know, do you have a serious relationship? And, you know, what if you fall in love and want to get married? And just kind of this, this you know, not so subtle undertone, like we want you to be married to the army. We, we don't want you to be committed to other relationships in your life because we want you to be, you know, at our whim, essentially. And she actually, when she got pregnant with my sister, they didn't have maternity uniforms available. This was the 80s. So, you know, women had been serving. I mean, if, if you look back in history, women have been serving in armed conflicts as long as men have. It, sometimes dressing as men in order to to be able to, to serve in that capacity. And as a nurse, I, that's the, the first official capacity when women were, were authorized to serve. So it's just, it's mind boggling to me that in the late 80s, they didn't have army nursing maternity uniforms available. But that's, it's like turning the Titanic around. It's, you know, culture changes uh, and we're still very much going through that in a lot of ways. 
I want to go back to something you mentioned a moment ago about your mother signing up uh, after the draft was was done away with. You know, so you, you highlight that that we are now the all volunteer force, and I think we just had the 50th anniversary of it last year. And uh, General George Casey, retired Chief Army Chief of Staff, and Dr. Joel uh, Cooper Smith are doing some work at Georgetown on what that next 50 years of the all volunteer force looks like. And they're talking about things like you know the Gen X and Gen Z. It's just a different mindset today in terms of looking to serve something greater than yourself and, you know, you know, God country core type of mentality. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on what you think the military should do generically uh, and in general in terms of supporting and encouraging the all volunteer force going forward. That's a really great question and something that, that I spent a decent amount of time thinking about. And it's, it's one of the the interesting dynamics in this era of service, because I, I think, gratefully, we've gotten to a point as a nation where most people are able to separate the conflicts from the people engaging in the conflicts. So you look at the Vietnam era, those folks weren't volunteering. They were drafted. They were sent to a place where many of them didn't want to go, doing things many of them didn't want to be doing. And they they came home and were were spat on and called baby killers. Now we're in an era where every single person who joins is doing so of their own volition. And, and yet we come home and there's, by and large, a, a positive reception and, and gratitude. And it's almost like the pendulum has swung a little far in that direction. And it's, it's become platitudes and, you know, thank you for your service, which, while it, it is meaningful, it is mostly surface level for a lot of folks. Um, and there's a, a lot of detachment because it's a volunteer only era. And I know a lot of services are struggling to meet their recruiting goals right now and th- different mindsets of generations. And as the, you know, political things being what they are and, and, and tensions and you know, a very, very polarized nation in a lot of ways, it's, it's a challenging thing to navigate. You know, the, the military is supposed to be representative of your society. And when we look at the demographics, it it really is mostly specific groups of people who are joining. And in order to, I think, continue to to serve this country in the way that the military theoretically wants to um, and and needs to in order to to have the the support that that they need to, to continue with an all volunteer force. there needs to be some culture changes there as well. Um, And there's still, as I mentioned, a lot of challenges in in being a woman serving. You know, women make up almost 20% of of the active duty force at this point. And we still have to deal with issues of of harassment and and military sexual trauma and and assault and these these horrible things that that women and men are are subject to. And, And people of, of different identities and, and different gender representations. And there it's the military has kind of historically not been very welcoming to, to folks who represent different perspectives like that. So there, there's a lot of, I, I think we're in a convergence zone and there's some big cultural changes that, that need to make place, that need to take place in order for it to really be an environment that encourages different types of people and different perspectives to join. And those are the perspectives that we need in order to, you know, make informed, nuanced decisions and lead people effectively um, and holistically. So 
that was that wasn't really an answer. <laughs> I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I just know that it's it's a big problem. And I hope that there are smart, dedicated people working to solve it. Well, no, I, I threw a curveball at you. And I think my third cup of coffee may be a little more of a, a deep thinker this afternoon. <laughs> uh, but I loved your response in terms of how you said the military is supposed to be indicative and reflective of your country's makeup. And you said it's not. And as you talk about women being 20% and then other uh, identities, we'll call them in terms of you know representing the population, to your point, the military is the Titanic or big oil tanker in the sea turning around. Uh, and it just takes time for those policy changes to take effect. But having people like yourself out there talking about them, you know, I think that's a big shot in the arm for, for the process. And I appreciate you bringing up uh, military sexual trauma. That's something that I have a lot of focus on in the nonprofit work that I do. And it's something obviously that is typically swept under the rug uh, by the military for obvious reasons. But one thing I recently learned, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but apparently military bases are also um, very engaged in human trafficking, which I had no idea about. So uh, that's also been a big focus for the show. We've had a lot of survivors on and talk about that. And that's something that I had my eyes blind and closed for, for decades on and now have made that a big focus. And so just thinking about things, you think about the military being, you know, rah, rah, let's go get them. But there's a lot of things behind the scenes, behind the curtain that need to be addressed. I don't say they need to be fixed, but they need, certainly need to be addressed. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of a a tricky thing. I mean, it's it's like, you know, there's a lot of controversy around the the police force right now. And these are organizations that you know, in 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 name and in, you know, kind of an idealistic mindset are supposed to represent the best of us and supposed to be, you know, leaders and examples and and model exemplary behavior and and take care of people. And in reality, it's it's a group of humans and and governed by you know some of the the biggest bureaucratic organizations in the world. So there there's problems that inevitably come out of that, especially when it's a culture that that kind of feeds off that hyper masculinity and in a lot of ways by necessity, you know, in a job where you have to be prepared to to make life and death decisions and to protect yourself and to protect. The men and women around you. It just doesn't translate into that, you know, normal environment or or that that caretaking environment that that it, it is expected to, um, you know, perhaps unfairly or unrealistically in a way. So it's it's this weird double-edged sword, but it is it in a lot of ways a microcosm of society and and particularly that hyper-masculine piece. So yeah, there, there's a lot of a lot of concerns about about rage and about power and and th those dynamics really you know kind of fester under the surface until suddenly they explode. And we're way off topic here, and I love when this happens because we've gone <laughs> on a rabbit hole. But just one thing on, on policing. Um, so my listeners know I'm getting my my doctorate and focusing on uh, job related PTSD not being treated for police officers. And recently read a white paper because that's what you do when you write a dissertation. You read white papers. Um, but this researcher said, and actually highlighted that everyone has a bad day, but police officers see everyone's bad day every day. And it's something I wouldn't think about. You just think they're, you know, is there construction down the street for me? Is they're managing traffic and, you know, maybe some petty theft at the grocery store or something, but no, there's suicides and gang things and drugs and human trafficking and, and sexual trauma and just all these things. And Hats off to the men and women who do that. Um, I know to your point, there's a big controversy in terms of what's going on, whether it's defund the police or something else. Um, 
but just something that the back of mind that just sticks in terms of like how they wake up every day and put on their shoes, their pants, their, their belt buckle, their, their gun and their badge and off they go. And you don't know what's going to happen when they get that call. All right, let's focus back on Lauren, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so without giving away too much that's in your book, would you share a memorable story or experience that your mother shared about her time in the military? We've talked a lot really since I got back from Afghanistan. That was kind of a, a, a turning point in our relationship in a way where we were able to open up in new ways to each other. As I said, we've always been close, but you know, as a child, and, and I have a new appreciation for this now as a parent, you have to be mindful of what you're sharing with your children and, and this, this desire to protect your, your kids. And of course, that's, you know, a big issue in, in and of itself. What does that mean? You know, how can I protect but not shelter and, and you know, own the responsibility of and, and the privilege of whatever position you're, you're born into? But my mom since I've gotten back, um, has been much more open with me about her experience. And we found a lot of connections, even though we were, our service was separated by generations and we served in different areas and in different roles. She was Army, I was Air Force. But some of the things I, I love hearing her talk about are her, her role in a very like interpersonal way when she was in Saudi Arabia and some of the specific patients that she worked with. Um, she worked in a Saudi Arabian hospital and a lot of the, the patients that she cared for were Iraqi nationals. They were prisoners of war sometimes, or they were injured Iraqi nationals who would come to the hospital. And, you know, she was initially afraid to treat them because she had, you know, internalized this, this fear of them as, you know, the other. And she met them and she said, oh, they were just puppy dogs. <laughs> and she just kind of, you know, fell in love with them in a way and learned that, you know, their stories were not so different from a lot of the, the folks that she worked with, the, the Americans that she worked with, or that they were fighting because of intimidation and threats against their family. So kind of moving beyond that you know, perception of reality and, and getting to the, the human to human connections that, that come through an experience like war, because really at its core, that's what it's about. It's a human experience. Let's expand about that on that a little bit more if we can. I'd like to ask the same questions about your military service, beginning with how did your mom's military service and experience influence your own perspective on patriotism, service, or military life? That's a, a great question and definitely something that I explored in writing this book. Um, when I signed my ROTC contract, it was my senior year of high school and just a couple months after 9-11. So looking at that on paper, it seems like 9-11 was a big motivating factor. And it was definitely part of it. But as I dug into it more, I realized there's a lot of layers that get into my, my strength coming from a military family. My mom was a huge part of that. My mom was my hero. And then when she deployed, she kind of elevated her hero status. I mean, I basically like built her up to be this, you know, mythological goddess. And really, really admired her. And so when when 9-11 occurred, you know, I was born and raised in Seattle. So we didn't have that immediate impact that you know, folks in your area may have experienced. It, it was more detached because we were on the West Coast. We had the buffer of geography. But for me, what really struck me was the, the patriotic swell in the country 
which felt very similar to the reception that my mom received when she came home from Desert Storm. And it was just this, you know, we're all in this together. You know, we're, we're united in a noble cause. And I specifically remember, and there's actually a scene in my book that, that captures my, my feelings driving back home from school um, the, the afternoon of 9-11. And there were people lining the streets with signs and waving American flags. And I just found myself honking. Like I wasn't even aware of what I was doing. I was just cheering and just caught up in it. And then Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA came on the radio. And that song came out during Desert Storm and had been an anthem for my mom's unit. And I don't know how long it had been since I heard it, but it everything kind of converged on me in that moment. And it was like something inside of me awakened. And I really think it was this, this latent patriotism that, you know, this desire to, to do what my mom had done, to do what my grandfathers had done, to be part of something noble like that. And then, of course, there was always the the promise of a, a full ride scholarship to my dream school on the beach in California, you know, being 18 and naive. So there, there are a lot of factors, but, but having that the mother that I, you know, really wanted to follow in her footsteps in a lot of ways was a huge part of that. And do you feel like you were better prepared for any of the experiences or challenges you encountered because your mom served? I think I was better prepared for being a woman in that environment. She did talk pretty openly about some of her experiences with harassment and actually encouraged me to join the Air Force as opposed to the Army in large part because of that. Um, so the Air Force has a higher percentage of women and in, in her perspective um, tends to be a little more welcoming um, and, and didn't have as many severe issues with, with harassment. Um, of course, still still many. There's there's things that come up about the service academies, you know, regularly with, with issues of, of sexual assault. Um, so definitely still a, a present issue. Um, but she, she, she thought that the Air Force had a little bit better quality of life. Um, and that was reinforced as we were um, driving across the country from Seattle to my first duty station in Florida and stayed at some, some Air Force bases. <laughs> we walk into this, this beautiful hotel room and my mom was like, wow, you've made a good choice with the Air Force. This is much better than, than the Army accommodations. I bet their food is better too. What are the primary responsibilities and duties of an Air Force Public Affairs officer? So as Air Force Public Affairs, I was basically the, the face and the mouthpiece of, of my home base. We were essentially PR for the military. So trying to share the stories of, of what's going on, trying to keep folks informed. So the, the base community where I was stationed, Hurlburt Field in Florida, was a community of 8,000 people. So that's service members and their families. And public affairs was charged with keeping them informed about things happening. And, you know, that's down to, you know, we've got a new schedule for the, the base gym to, you know, we had a fallen service member and there will be a memorial service on this day to, you know, there's an active threat or an, a a hurricane barreling toward the, the Gulf Coast. So these are the procedures you need to follow. So focused on communicating with our, our internal audience, as well as media relations and community relations, just trying to, to keep people informed about what's going on, what we're doing, and with the, the overarching goal of, of building support um, and understanding of our mission. And what qualifications and training did you have to have to become a public, public affairs officer? So in addition to my 
basic military training for just to qualify me to be an Air Force officer in general. I also went to a specific public affairs training, which focused on journalism, media relations, um, you know, how to, to escort media representatives, how to you know, effectively translate what, what we're doing, what our mission is, what folks are saying into something that the, the general public will understand, and also how to, to train other people to effectively engage with the media. So that is kind of interesting, actually, to be sitting on this side of things, because this this interview that I'm doing with you, this might be something that I would be you know, preparing a, a base commander to, to go through. You know, what are the, the key messages that we want to focus on? Here's, here's some questions that they might ask. You know, how would you respond to these? You know, if there, there's a, a, a controversial issue happening, you know, be prepared to discuss that and, you know, bridge to this thing in, in that way. So as you look at, you know, politicians doing press conferences and those kinds of things, the, the tap dancing that they do and, you know, focusing on this mission over over that one and how do we get from here to there? Those were the, the types of things that I was trained to help other people navigate. So you answer the question you want to, not the question you were asked. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I admit it has been a, a conscious effort for me to kind of be, be more open and vulnerable and, and say what I, I really feel as opposed to kind of doing that that soundbite dance. So you talked about your activities you handled while on the base. What types of uh, media activities did you handle during your deployment to Afghanistan? It was a lot of uh, similar type activities, but in a more kind of controlled and high stakes environment. So when I, when I was stationed in Florida, it was a very military friendly town. And we had you know, our local military beat reporter who would come on base regularly and who we were all on very you know good first name basis with. And then we would have national media folks come in or they filmed one of the Transformers movies, some scenes on base. So we were involved in you know, essentially babysitting them for, for that endeavor and, and hooking them up with you know folks to be extras and, and that kind of thing. Um, in a deployed environment, it was all kind of hyper-focused. So we would have a handful of embed reporters who would come and spend a few days with us. Um, I was stationed on a small forward operating base and my particular unit was a provincial reconstruction team. So very much focused on the nation building, working with locals to try to build up their, their infrastructure, their capacity for, for governance and, and healthcare and, and basic services to provide to their people. We were stationed with other units who had different focuses. There was an agribusiness development team that was working on building up the, the agricultural infrastructure in the local area. And then there was the, the more traditional kind of kinetic focused unit that, that engaged in combat operations when necessary. So we all worked very closely together. It was a, a very small base, less than a mile in circumference. So when we had a media person coming, we kind of tried to get the most bang for our buck and, you know, send them on missions that involved multiple units. So it was kind of a, a media share, to, for lack of better words. And it was in a way that I hadn't experienced stateside much more targeted. So we would very specifically send these people on missions that would help us communicate what we wanted to communicate. And by and large, that was that these operations are being successful, we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars, we're taking good care of America's sons and daughters who are serving. And I quickly realized that 
that was not the whole story. And that's what the international and American publics and the Afghan publics were being exposed to through my job as the, the mouthpiece was not the full picture. And I got very uncomfortable in that role. You know, I, I essentially was, was tasked to babysit reporters sometimes. Um, we had one reporter come to our area who had written some stories that were controversial, not in that they were untrue, but just in that they revealed some things that wasn't entirely flattering to the military. Basically that money had been spent for something that wasn't really serving the purpose that it was intended to. And that's a lot of that has come out in, in the last few years that, you know, there, there's a lot of unaccounted for taxpayer dollars, a lot of, of money that was spent on construction projects that were, you know, very shoddily built, or you know, we experienced some that were, you know, contracted to be built in one area. And then there was a tribal dispute or some kind of bribery going on that then led them to be built somewhere else. So all of these things, this very tangled web that we were operating in, and we were picking and choosing the, the most stellar examples to expose external folks to. Uh, and I, I got very uncomfortable in that role as information filter. What were some of the main challenges you faced while serving Afghanistan? And were those challenges different for women than men? A big one for me was the disillusionment and really just a, a harsh clash between my expectations and the reality of the situation. And part of that was being young and naive and very much drinking the Kool-Aid, thinking about, you know, I'm following in my mom's footsteps, this this mythical heroic woman, and I want to be a mythical heroic woman myself. And also just consuming all of these messages around me in the military and through the public affairs chain of, of information. Um, even the, the folks who we replaced when I came to Afghanistan, the unit that had been there previously, were just trumpeting all the success and, and the wonderful working relationships that they had with the Afghans. And it didn't take long to see that, again, that was not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that it was a much more complicated situation and a lot of factors at play, and that we, in our role, had a very limited capacity to impact them in any kind of meaningful way. So I realized that very quickly into a nine-month deployment and then had to kind of shoulder that for the rest of the time, which I, I think has been a, a challenge for a lot of folks in, in these recent conflicts, the, the questioning of what are we doing here and, and is this meaningful and, and am I doing this in the best way? And the reality is in that situation, again, like, like we addressed earlier, when you're in a situation where you have to be concerned about at any minute potentially making life or death decisions and really focus on survival, it's impossible to distance yourself from that to ponder the greater, you know, emotional, psychological implications of, of what you're involved in. Trying to do that will, will paralyze you and inhibit you from, from doing that important survival job that, that you need to be doing. So the, the body's natural coping mechanism in, in those instances is to just kind of shut down. And, and I very much did that. Um, and it, it took a long time for me to be able to access those spaces again. But to your point of, of the, the gender dynamics coming to play, I was very fortunate in a lot of ways. I had a, a really supportive team. Um, my, my team was about 80 people and we had um, seven women on our team of 80 people, which is actually a relatively high percentage in a combat zone. But the, the men were all extremely supportive and really 
worked to protect us. So I personally did not experience anything more than minor harassment. And I'm very grateful for that. I know that's not the case for many people. Where my gender was most apparent was going out on missions in the local area, which was a very conservative area of Afghanistan. Women still wore burqas locally. So we, all the women on my team, when we were out in on local missions, we wore headscarves in respect for local culture. And in, in my role as, as an, an officer who was charged with communicating with locals and, and talking to them and understanding what, what was going on in their area and what, and what their goals were, I had to interface with a lot of, of men predominantly because they were the ones in positions of power. And it became very, very charged because of my gender. So for example, we would be in a meeting at the governor's compound and kind of standing in a receiving line to welcome all of these tribal leaders and government officials. And in my body armor, you know, before I took off my helmet, I kind of blended in with, with the folks around me. But as soon as the locals got close to me and recognized I was a woman, some of them would like step back and just skip right over me to the person beside me, not shake my hand. Some of them, you could kind of see them thinking through like, oh, I should probably shake her hand because, you know, they give us money and, and support our security. So it should probably be nice. And then some were just bubbling over with excitement to see me. It was like this exciting anomaly that was gracing them with my presence and actually got on the news. I got my picture taken um, for, for circumstances where I really had nothing to do with what was going on. I was just at a meeting as an observer. So again, that weird spotlight of, of being a woman that, you know, could be beneficial when I needed to wield it, when I needed attention for something. But if I didn't, if I didn't want attention, if attention was not beneficial, that spotlight was still always there. Let's shift gears on your other deployment. Not many people think of the Republic of Mali and certainly can't put point out in a map. Why were you deployed there and what was the culture like? And then ultimately, what was the experience like for you? And I confess, before I went to Mali, I wouldn't have been able to point it out on a map either. I learned that that's where Timbuktu is located. Timbuktu is in the Republic of Mali. <clears throat> I was there for about a month, um, about uh, four months before my Afghanistan deployment, actually. And the the mission there was taking a brand new aircraft that we were just starting to use in an operational capacity at my base um, and essentially using it as a training mission and also to train local forces. So the, the Malian forces, we had some Senegalese forces who joined us for, for some of the, the training um, that American troops were leading. And because I was at a special operations base, we had very highly trained um, expert soldiers who were in, in a role where they were mentoring soldiers from other companies. The, the CV-22 tilt rotor aircraft was the, the plane that we took on this um, deployment and that it's now used by the Marines. It's, it's at a couple different Air Force bases. It's a really cool one. When it first, first came to our base, there were actually a number of, of crashes on the road outside the base because it was just so cool to watch flying overhead and people would get distracted and then rear end the person in front of them. But it has, has propellers that can, um, it can take off like a helicopter because the propellers um, face up or, and then once it's up, it can put them forward and fly like a plane. Very cool. Got to ride in it a couple times. Amazing, like roller coaster like experience. So I was there in an, a public affairs capacity, basically supporting the first operational use of this aircraft on training missions and on, on joint training missions with the, the local forces. And I had an absolutely incredible time. 
uh, it was just, it was the first time that I had done something where I really felt like, you know, I, I would sit at home um, at, at my base in Florida, like writing press releases in my air conditioned office while I was watching, you know, the special operations forces train outside in the heat of the day, like literally carrying logs. This was part of their training. They would run around the base in the heat of the day carrying logs. And I was like typing on my computer and answering phone calls. And it just didn't feel like I was contributing in a meaningful way. So going to Mali and, and working directly with the local population and just being exposed to another culture and seeing how they saw the Americans and, and just working with them in a, in a very close partnership capacity was, was so meaningful for me. We, we ran a couple of free medical clinics where folks would walk for hours to come and be seen by American medics. And, you know, anything from malaria to like a sore throat um, or, or children dealing with malnutrition. So it was, it was my first exposure to, to that kind of, you know, hearts and minds mission that, that the military engages in. And I just totally ate it up. And it was actually on the heels of that that I volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan on a mission that, that seemed very similar, that hearts and minds, working with local population and, you know, trying to, to help them help themselves. Obviously, you're a writer. But what inspired you, specific, excuse me, specifically to write The Fine Art of Camouflage? It didn't start out so much as a book project. It was really, when I got back from Afghanistan, I had so many feelings and just a lot of just feeling unsettled and, and emotions that I didn't know what to do with. And the way that I've always processed those kinds of swirling thoughts and emotions is, is to write about them. I, I've always liked writing and kind of gravitated to that as, as a way of sorting through things and making things tangible. So that was really the early attempts at, at writing something that maybe in some form became this book was just kind of purging that from me and trying to, to start to intellectualize it and understand what it meant. And it took a, a lot of, it took 12 years and going through my, my master's in fine arts program, where the, the beginnings of this book were my thesis that I was working on closely with some writing mentors and getting workshopped by classmates and having other people read my work for the first time to really start to shape it into something that wasn't just, you know, me spilling my guts and totally navel gazing and raw like diary entries, but actually shaping it into something that, that other people could relate to and, and maybe find meaningful as well. The big question, what did your mom think about it as you're writing it? And then when she saw the final product of the book? My mom has been so supportive the, the entire time. My whole family is. And I'm really grateful for that. I, I know a lot of folks who, who engage in personal writing. You know, it, it can be tricky because this is my story, but other people are inevitably a part of my story. And it's not their decision to, to be a part of that story. So, so you're, you're writing about other people in sometimes very intimate ways. And, and that can be a tricky thing to navigate. Um, but my, my family has always been very supportive of my writing. And uh, both of my parents have read numerous drafts of this book. And I actually have a draft that they they looked through here. Um, and you can see all the sticky <laughs> a lot notes. of post-it notes. <laughs> <laughs> that, those are all marking pages where they found typos or where they had questions or remembered something differently. So I wanted to be to be aware of how other people remembered things too. Cause of course, you know, memory is fallible. 
Um, and I wanted to include them in that process, especially my mom, who's such a big part of my story. And you know, give them an opportunity to share their thoughts. And then that led, led to some other questions that I, I think helped the writing dig deeper into some, some of the things that, you know, I was only aware at, at you know, level two and talking to my mom helped me dig down to, you know, level level four or five. So I'm, I'm very grateful that it became more of a collaborative experience with them. Did you ever think it would take you 12 years or were you at a point where you thought you'd never finish it? I actually thought I finished it like, you know, eight or nine times <laughs> in that process. I I had my my reading to, to launch my book um, back in March at a, a local bookstore here in Seattle. And I wore a dress that I had purchased to, to wear at my book launch um, when I thought that that was coming up inevitably very soon. Uh, and that was like eight years ago. So <laughs> I, I've been at many stages where I felt like, you know, it's about to happen. And it has just been... It has been harder um, every step of the way than I imagined, but I, I feel like the manuscript is is what it needs to be now. It, it took this long to get there, but if you told me when I was starting out that it would take 12 years, I, I may not have <laughs> stuck in it for the long haul. So I guess ignorance is bliss in that sense. So I may be out of line here, but have you started a second book yet? <laughs> um, in terms of pondering ideas for another book, I, I suppose. Um, thinking about things is actually a big part of the writing process. It's also a very powerful procrastination tool that I I wield very effectively. Um, but the, the place I'm at in my life with a, a full-time job and, and twin two-year-olds doesn't really afford a lot of space to you know sit down and, and hash things out um, in the way that I need to, to, to kind of clear that brain space and, and have the creative energy to really start something new. But I, I think through things a lot and I have quite a few ideas and every once in a while, I have a, a document on my computer that's just like writing stuff. And I just like, you know, stick thoughts or sentences or themes in there that I want to come back to. And maybe I will, maybe I won't, but um, I really think that something has to be an obsession in order to to carry it through a full length project, even you know I, I write a lot of a lot of essays or, or op eds and even something like that. Just the the amount of of mental energy and focus it takes to to craft something at least at least for me, <laughs> I'm not something who can just sit down and, and pound out you know brilliance um, in an hour. Um, and even after you know, 12 years, I I, <laughs> I, I don't want to call this brilliance, but um, it it's hard one for me and. Um, I just don't have the the brain space that I would like to have to be able to do that. And I'm I'm kind of, you know, I guess I'm waiting for for the muse to to come and invade my brain um, in order to to allow me to to focus on my next obsession. And while we're talking about it, please tell our listeners and viewers where they can find the fine art of camouflage. The fine art of camouflage is pretty much available through any bookseller. So I always encourage folks to go to your local bookstore. If they don't have it on the shelves, then they can order it and have it to you in a few days. It's also available online at bookshop.org, Barnes and Noble, and Amazon. And um, if you want to check out an excerpt, I have one on my website at laurenkjohnson.com. And K is spelled K-A-Y, laurenkjohnson.com. I also will be reading a section tonight at a virtual event with Matt Gallagher, who is an amazing, very prolific 
veteran writer wrote a memoir about his time in Iraq and his um, his fourth novel coming out early next year, um, which blows my mind. He's not that much older than I am. So, you know, if I continue at this pace, I'll I'll be at that that point in like 36 years or so. Um, <laughs> but should be a great event. We're going to each each read from our, our work and then and then chat about the writing process and about this this weird dynamic of being a veteran in the post 9-11 era. So the information for that is on my website as well. And again, that's laurenkjohnson.com. And again, K-A-Y spelled, I'm sorry, K spelled K-A-Y. And if people want you to come speak in an event, go through your website as well. Absolutely. Yes. I would love to do that in person, virtually. Um, yeah. Teleportation, wh- whatever is available. I'm always happy to, to pop in. I have a contact form on my website and I will uh, get back to you as soon as I can as I'm juggling my my life. toddlers and, and life. Yes. <laughs> When you left the Air Force, you were diagnosed with chronic adjustment disorder. We hear a lot about post-traumatic stress or PTS, and actually today is National PTSD Awareness Day. What are the differences between post-traumatic stress and chronic adjustment disorder? Chronic adjustment disorder uh, was my diagnosis when I left the military. Um, you, you get an, an assessment to kind of you know see what type of VA care you're eligible for, and my interpretation of it at the time was kind of like PTSD light. I didn't you know, check quite all of the boxes to qualify for, for PTSD. And chronic adjustment disorder is basically a, a stress disorder that um, someone exhibits when they've been through a stressful situation. And I think it's interesting that the wording in the uh, diagnostic manual is something to the effect of, you know, the amount of stress that you experience or the impact it has on you is greater than could be expected from that experience. So like you're more stressed out than you should be, which is such an interesting concept for me because like, how is someone supposed to respond to, like what, what is a normal response to a very abnormal situation? Like being in a combat zone for nine months is an abnormal situation. And of course it's going to take you time to, to come down from that you know, hypervigilance, always being on, always expecting something horrible to happen. For me, I actually think in hindsight, what a better fit for my experiences is moral injury, which is a term that was not around when I first got back from Afghanistan and left the service. It's really just come into play in the last 10 years or so. And moral injury acknowledges that there's some gray space in you know, something that, that is distressing, uh, that impacts you on a, on a deep you know, emotional, psychological level. But it doesn't have that, you know, stereotypical, traditional, what we think of as as trauma-inducing experience. You know, I wasn't in combat. I didn't have any friends who were seriously injured or or killed while I was deployed. So I felt like I didn't deserve to struggle. Um, And I I felt a lot of guilt about that, which then contributed, of course, to my struggling. It became a self-licking ice cream cone. And moral injury refers to not necessarily that you know psychological injury of, of post-traumatic stress or not a physical injury, but an injury of the soul. So engaging in activities or witnessing activities or allowing activities to continue that come into conflict with your morals. And for me, that was being the information filter and feeling like I was referring the Afghans to a broken system with their government. And like I wasn't giving the American people access to all of the information they needed to make informed decisions about the continued war effort. So that to me just left me very unsettled and feeling guilty, you know, 
was I doing things that I shouldn't have done? You know, did, did I send send ripples with the things I was saying or, or wasn't saying? And you know, what if people got caught in those ripples? And what if that then became a life and death situation? I always kind of protected myself thinking my job isn't life or death. I'm just a public affairs officer. But words are powerful and, and messages are powerful. And I started kind of going down that spiral of thinking about, you know, the secondary and tertiary effects of that. Um, so moral injury, um, I appreciate that that has become part of the conversation and certainly not exclusively to the military either. There's actually been a lot of discussion about first responders and, and those at the front lines of, of COVID healthcare who've been dealing with these, these moral conundrums, you know, wanting to help people, but not having the resources or enough resources to help everyone, wanting to help people, but not knowing how, or wanting to help people who don't want to be helped. So all of these things that, that really kind of hit you at a, you know, deep in your soul level, um, I think are captured really well in the term of moral injury. You talked about not being a combat zone, but remember the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> Lauren K. Johnson, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I appreciate the conversation. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you for your service. And I do mean that. Thank you. I believe you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.